Wednesday morning. Uh, we will continue our lecture series today on soteriology called the Doctrines of Grace, Calvinism. <clears throat> Last Sunday we looked at the first doctrine of grace, the T in the tulip, total depravity. We learned that total depravity means that fallen man is spiritually dead in sin, and he cannot comprehend biblical truth the right way. He cannot seek God. He cannot believe the gospel. He cannot repent. He cannot please God. He cannot attain righteousness. He cannot see and enter the kingdom of God. He can't do any of these things unless he is raised to spiritual life. We call that regenerated by God's immeasurably great power. Total depravity makes it absolutely necessary. This, this, this condition of total depravity makes it absolutely necessary for the sovereign God to take the initiative and intervene in the lives of spiritually dead sinners. Total depravity means He has to do it. If He doesn't do it, nothing happens. He's got to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The Bible teaches that the starting point for God's saving activity in the lives of spiritually dead sinners is not the moment of conversion like many folks wrongly assume, but in eternity past. The starting point, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is, is really foreknowledge, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, foreknowledge, and then election or predestination. Election and predestination are biblical doctrines that appear throughout Scripture in a variety of contexts, but they basically mean the same thing. They are, in a sense, synonymous. If God elects something to happen, He is predestinating it. And if God predestinates for something to happen, He is, in a sense, electing it. There's the connection between the two. Now, the doctrine of election that we see in Scripture teaches that God elected people to salvation before the foundation of the world. Election is God's Initial intervention whereby He chooses spiritually dead sinners and elects them to salvation. He also predestinates when and where each one will be effectively called or effectually called by the Holy Spirit where they will be regenerated and where they will be given faith and repentance, where they will be justified, adopted, and sanctified, and then ultimately glorified. He lays all of that out. He's done all of that in eternity to pass, set the stage for all of that. Election means that God not only chose people for salvation, but that He also marked out their entire journey of grace start to finish. All of these things were, were predetermined in eternity past before the foundation of the world for those God chose to save. Now, Christians have always affirmed the doctrine of grace, or not the doctrines of grace, but the doctrine of election. They've pretty much always believed in the doctrine of election. It's, it's an orthodox belief, which means it's always been part of the church's beliefs. Um, the doctrine of election has been believed the whole time. It is basically a historical doctrine, a biblical doctrine, an orthodox doctrine. It is a historical doctrine. And yet, this Precious doctrine, has it's really been under fire more today than probably ever before in the history of the church. Uh, Ligonier recently conducted its annual State of Theology survey. Uh, I get a little email every time they do this toward the end of each year, and 
Uh, it, it concluded that only 38% of evangelical respondents agree with the doctrine of election or support the doctrine of election, while 44% reject it and 18% are unsure about it. So of all the people that they surveyed, thousands of, of professing Christians, only 38% actually support the doctrine of election. That's pretty incredible. In fact, I think it shows the influence that Arminian theology or soteriology, it, the fact that it remains strong in American evangelical churches, right? Because Arminian theology is the thing that tears at election or tears it down. So this poll shows that what I've been saying all along, that Arminianism is, is predominant in American Christian churches. Now, there are, however, some Arminians who do agree with the doctrine of election. It's important for us to know, note this. They believe God chose people for salvation before the foundation of the world. That's, that's not an issue for them. They, they unite with the Calvinist on that point. They're not fighting against that. Some are, some aren't. Their disagreement with Calvinists is not necessarily centered on election itself, but on how God elects. That's where the debate happens. That's where the theological debate and argument takes place. It's over how God does it, not it itself. At the Synod of Dort, the Arminians argued that election is conditional. In order for a person to be elected to salvation by God, he or she must first meet certain conditions, namely the condition of faith. They argued during the synod that before the foundation of the world, God looked into the future over the corridors of time to see what men and women are doing with Christ. And those whom God saw choosing to believe in Christ, He elected to salvation. And those whom God saw rejecting Christ, He passes over. That's what they argued at the synod of Dort. That's what they argue for today. And during the same synod, the Calvinists defended the church's official position. It was a long-established tradition of the doctrine of election and, and how God went about it. And they defended this position during the synod, and they argued for unconditional election, not conditioned election, but unconditional election, which says that election unto salvation is not based on any conditions that spiritually dead sinners must first meet, but entirely upon the mercy of God. That's what the Calvinists argued for. So the Arminians argued for conditional election. The Calvinists argued for unconditional election. This is what transpired over the course of about nine months from 1618 to 1619. We've talked about this. I'm going to be beating a dead horse with this data. But we need to know our history. If we don't know our history, we're destined and doomed to repeat it. After nine months of intense debate and rigorous study of Scripture, what happened? The Synod sided with the Calvinists and expelled the Arminians from Holland. In fact, what, what the Synod really just did was upheld the biblical doctrines it, it had always affirmed. And this morning, we are going to take up this subject and look at the sect, second doctrine of grace, the U in TULIP, unconditional election. We are going to build a rock-solid case for this precious doctrine so that we can become properly aligned with actual biblical soteriology, the study of how God saves or how God goes about it, 
But before we look at what the Bible says about unconditional election, I think it would be a good idea to check out what it says about election in general, since only 38% of evangelicals affirm it, right? Makes sense that we kind of look at the whole of election, not just the unconditional aspect of it. I think it's good that we pray before we get to work. Lord Jesus, help us now as we begin to look at Scripture. Help us to see the doctrine of election clearly and to embrace it as a biblical truth, a biblical reality. Help us uh, with our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts to accept this and not just uh, what the Bible says in a general sense, but what it says about it being unconditional. These are razor-sharp biblical truths that, that we need to believe. And so help us to do that this morning. Be glorified in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to these passages. Now, this is not a comprehensive list. There's much more, but of course, we have, we have time that we have to deal with here. Uh, these are all verses that, that point to election in some way, shape, or form. We go to Genesis. We'll begin at the beginning of the Bible. Makes sense. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19 says, God is speaking. He says, For I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And generally speaking, when you see the word chosen or chosen scripture, when it has to do with God choosing somebody, we're talking about election. We're not talking about God choosing somebody in the moment. We're talking about God choosing someone before the foundation of the world. This is precisely what he's saying here. He chose Abraham. And, and you know that when he, actually, when he actually revealed himself to Abraham, Abraham was worshiping idols in Ur. God came to him. He was an idolater. God reveals himself to him, makes him a Christian. But this was all predestined to happen. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Obviously, we're talking about the election of, of Israel here, and the election of Israel pertains primarily to the fact that Jesus would come through Israel. But you see here God has chosen this people group, what, to bring His Messiah back, but the fact that He chose them takes place way before the foundation of the world. This is election here again. Psalm 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. When did God choose them? In eternity past. It's election. Psalm 65, verse 4, Bruce read the whole chapter. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. The word chose there or choose there, again, it's referring to election. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, this is the HCSB translation. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is God's election of Jeremiah, the prophet, whom he chose to be a prophet for him in eternity past. He elected him to this, to this, uh, to this uh, endeavor here. This is election. 
Uh, Haggai chapter 2, verse 23, On that day, declares, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O uh, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shethiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Election. This is, took place in eternity past. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. Who are the chosen ones here? The elect. When were they chosen? Before eternity passed. You know, when the gospel goes out, it's like a shotgun blast. Everyone hears it. But among those, the hearers, there are people who have been chosen for salvation in eternity past. That's what he's speaking of here. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 7. And, uh, and will not God give justice to His elect, to His elect, who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay, uh, delay long over them? The elect refers to a specific group of people, the people of Christ, who were elected to salvation before the foundation of the world. Um, obviously, a very famous one here, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30. In fact, Romans 8, 9, and 10 all deal with election. That's the point that Paul's trying to make there. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. And predestined is the same thing as election. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a phenomenal passage. This is where we see the theological term or reality of what we call the golden chain. You've got election through and through. It begins with foreknowledge. And just as a quick note to you, for those whom God foreknew, this doesn't have anything to do with God analyzing people and, and studying them to see what decisions they would make. It, it, the reference here is not to the activity of man. It is to the people themselves. Notice what it says, for those whom he foreknew, whom he foreknew. We're talking about a people group here. God knew these people in eternity past. It's not about what they did. He knew them in eternity past, and he loved them in eternity past. He knew that he would choose these people. That's what's being taught here. The idea that God looks out over the corridors of time and learns what we're doing and then reacts is ridiculous. It destroys the doctrine of election. Those whom he foreknew, we're talking about people, not their actions. He foreknew these people. He loved these people. In fact, it can't be translated as foreloved. And then he predestines them. That's the whole chain. Uh, we're talking about election here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He's talking about us in Christ, the elect. In love, he predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why did He predestine us? Why did He predestine and elect us to save us? He did it in accordance with His will, not in accordance with what we did, in accordance with His will and due to the fact that He loves us. Ephesians 1 is talking about election. Colossians, and it took place before the foundation of the world. Colossians 3 uh, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, the elect, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Here's what you put on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are instructions to the elect. 
Put on, put on this compassion. Put on this kindness. Put on this humility. Because before you were called out of that, you were the opposite of those things. I, I think we could all say amen to that, right? This is the chosen ones. These are the elect whom He chose in eternity past. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. And here's an, another word used. For God has not destined... You could even say predestined or elected, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're talking about what God did for His people before the foundation of the world. He didn't predestine them, elect them to wrath. He elected them to salvation through Jesus. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, in Paul's introduction, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Elect, again here, a body elected to salvation before the foundation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. I could hit you with hundreds of these, by the way. I'm only going to hit you with about 20. 1 Peter 1, 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, or Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect exiles. These are God's people who have basically been, He would chose them in eternity past, but at this particular juncture when Peter, Peter writes to them, they had been kicked out of their own land. They'd been run off. They were being persecuted. Uh, Revelation, we, we're going, remember we're going kind of through all Scripture. We started Genesis, we did some middle Scripture, and now we're at Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. There's more in between. We only have so much time. And all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. These elect people that God elected and predestined to salvation before the foundations of the world, their names were recorded in this book, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Your name was written in a book. God knows you. God loved you, chose you, wrote your name in a book before anything ever existed. It was there, and guess what? It can't be taken out. It can't be blotted out of this book. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them. He's no sissy. He'll smoke His enemies, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with Him are called the chosen and faithful. These people were chosen and elected to salvation, predestined before the foundation of the world. There's the full panoramic, Genesis to Revelation. It's everywhere. The Gospels make it abundantly clear that Jesus had the elect engraved upon His mind during His earthly ministry. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of those given to Him in eternity past by the Father. John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 10, verse 29. John chapter 17, verses 2, 6, and 9. You really see this in the high priestly prayer. As you can see, the doctrine of election is everywhere in Scripture. It is at the beginning of the Bible, it is in the middle of the Bible, and it is at the end of the Bible. Now we can also go to many locations in Scripture to see the unconditional aspect of election, but I would like to go to the book of Acts. Now, it's important to note that when I speak of election and unconditional election, I'm not talking about or speaking of two different types of election. The Bible only teaches one type of election, and it is unconditional. Sometimes the Bible just talks about election in a general way, and that's kind of what we've been looking at. 
But sometimes it also speaks of election in a more specific way where it adds the unconditional component to it. So don't get confused. I'm not promoting two types of election here. There's one type of election and it is always unconditional. Keep that in mind. Now you guys can take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. This is where we will spend the majority of our time this morning. It's just one simple little verse. And really what we're doing here is not only putting forward unconditional election, but we are defending the clear teachings of Scripture against the Arminian notion of conditioned election. That's what we're doing here. And this is what took place at the Synod of Dort. The Calvinists there were far more talented than me. Now let me give you a little context here because I don't want to just swing into this verse. We need to understand what's, what's playing out here because us Calvinists get blamed all the time for not, for not understanding the context. The Arminians always saying, well, obviously they make it mean that because they don't understand the context. Really? Well, let me give you some context. Actually, it's in the reverse that it happens. Acts 13 is what? It, it basically records the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Remember when we studied this about 10,000 years ago? Actually, it was probably more like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. We read through and, and preached through the book of Acts. This records the beginning of his first missionary journey where he goes out with Barnabas. Uh, it describes his initial commissioning and the first cities that he and Barnabas visited. After rebuking a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, I added that because my son thinks that that's a hilarious title, it basically means fake Jesus. When he was in school, he was doing geometry, and he called it bar geometry because he hated it. Uh, I put that in there for you, Colin. I love you. After rebuking this goofball named Bar Jesus and, and basically preaching the gospel throughout the island of Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas sailed to Perga and then traveled to Antioch in Pisidia where they visited multiple Jewish synagogues and they preached the gospel all over in these synagogues. We see this in verses 5 through 14 of Acts 13. We're building context. On the second Sabbath, almost the entire city gathered. This is literally the, the wording the Scripture uses here. Uh, yeah, he's, he's using a little hyperbole, but what he's saying is that this synagogue was so packed with people, it looked like the whole town was in it. He says the whole city basically gathers at this, on this Sabbath at a synagogue to hear the word of the Lord, right? They, they hear Paul and Barnabas preaching the week before, the Saturday before, and the people are like, we got to go hear more of this. But when the Jews, it says, and when you see this, it's not referencing just regular Jewish people. It usually means the Jewish religious leaders. When the Jews or Jewish religious leaders saw the crowds, it says they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, right? It even says they reviled him. It says out of jealousy. This is what happens. You've got a, a, a church that meets there regularly, and it's really a Jewish synagogue, but they meet regularly, and they don't pull in very many people. Then a guest speaker comes, and the whole town comes, and then the elders of that church are upset because those guys brought in a whole bunch of people. They get upset, and they get jealous. And that's what's really playing out here. These Jewish religious leaders were ticked off. Why are they coming to hear him, and they never come to hear me? They were upset, so they start contradicting what Paul is preaching. This has never happened to me while I'm in the pulpit. If it did, I'd probably, never mind. It hasn't happened. I've had people come to me afterwards and contradict me, but never during. If you do it during, you're probably going to get kicked in the head. Reviled him, right? But Paul and Barnabas, these guys were not sissy lalas. They were not woke. 
They were, they were not snowflakes. Could you imagine going on a missionary journey as a woke snowflake? As soon as you preach the gospel, like, that gospel's stupid. I got to go home, right? I got to go home. I, I got to go take a bath. These guys were not wimps. They were not sissy lalas. What did they do? They actually rebuke the agitators. They say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Think Jew first, Gentile second, right? Think of that scripture. It was necessary that we present it to you Jews first. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, non-Jews, verses 44 to 46. Remember, we're building context. And if you don't know it, I just said it, but Gentiles, that means non-Jew. Jews are Jews, Gentiles are non-Jews. If you're not Jewish, then you are a Gentile, right? How dare you? How disgusting. Now, being a Gentile just means you're not Jewish. It doesn't mean anything else like that. I'm a Gentile, I guess. I'm not gentle, but I'm a Gentile. And now we come to verse 47, right, which sets up verse 48, our text. In verse 47, Paul says this, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, now just understand the context. In antiquity, Jews did everything they could to exclude Gentiles from the things of God. You know, the Jewish people were supposed to be a light to the world. And they took that light that God gave them and put it under a bushel. They hid it from the Gentile nations. They, they, they hated the Gentile nations. They rejected the Gentile nations. Instead of being a light, they did these things. They actually, even when, a, when you had a proselyte, a Gentile convert to Judaism, they still remained barred from certain areas in the temple. The temple had certain courts and stuff, and if you were a Gentile convert, you couldn't go into certain areas. Even then, they barred them. They excluded, the Jews excluded Gentiles from, from certain feasts and celebrations, and they had a ton of them, and these guys were always partying. If a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, the rabbis made them perform rigorous and even painful rituals like get circumcised. Well, that'd be fun when you're 45 years old. I would be like, I will remain a pagan. But they would do this. And you know what Jews called Gentiles all the time? They called them dogs. They called them dogs. Matthew 15, verse 27, where uh, the, the Syrophoenician woman says, well, even the dogs get crumbs from the tables. They were called dogs. The Jews treated Gentiles horrifically in this day. Now think about what Paul has just said. He tells these unbelieving, hostile Jews that the Lord had made him and Barnabas lights for the Gentiles because the Lord's plan of salvation is not just for Jews but for people from every tribe and tongue. This is a rebuke against these Jewish leaders. Oh, you don't want salvation? Well, we've actually come to give it to these guys over here that are not Jewish. This is what he's saying. Salvation is to be brought to the ends of the earth. Why? Because God is going to save people from all over the earth, not just Jews. And that is a Jewish idea that, hey, he's just come for us. Now, here's what I want you to notice in verse 47. This is crucial. To understanding 48, you must see this first. You need to notice the cause and effect in verse 47. This is critical. 
And we will see this again in the next line. Here, here we go. Paul and Barnabas were appointed to be lights for the Gentiles by the Lord. Okay, that's the cause. And they became lights for the Gentiles. That's the effect. In fact, this is where the gospel was really first brought to Gentiles. So, so Paul and Barnabas were commanded and called and ordained and appointed to become ministers of the gospel, lights for the Gentiles, right? By Jesus, that is the cause. And what was the effect? They actually became it right at this very moment and then beyond this when they toured around and preached the gospel to Gentiles all over the place. Cause and effect. The Lord was the active outside source. Paul and Barnabas were the passive subjects, right? The Lord had appointed them and they became what He had appointed, lights for the Gentiles. What are we learning here? Appointment comes first. It is the cause. That's what we're learning here. And this is the immediate context of the next line, okay? Think cause and effect, think Jesus, think God as the cause, and whatever it is that we carry out, that is the effect. Now we read our text, verse 48. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life... What did those who were appointed to eternal life do? They believed. They believed. When the Gentiles in the synagogue, and there were a ton of them because the whole town had come out, when they heard a Jewish preacher named Paul describe God's plan of salvation, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. That's the gospel. Why? Because they realized that God's plan may include them. Well, heck, man, the Jews have been telling us all along that God hasn't come to save Gentiles. And now you're a Jewish authority figure, and you're telling us that you've come to be a light to us? Hallelujah, amen. Now, their elation shows that the Holy Spirit was present and working in their hearts. Why? Because the message of the cross is not joyful to spiritually dead sinners. It is foolishness, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the second half of verse 48 is absolutely key. This is where we see unconditional election. The Gentiles who were rejoicing had been appointed to eternal life, and then they believed the gospel in time and space. They had been appointed in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, and when their time was up, the Spirit came and worked in power, and they believed and really in a sense received that appointment now the greek word for appointed is tasso and it means to determine it is sometimes translated as ordained or chosen or designated destined determined or predestined in fact several translations of this very same verse use these words instead of appointed listen to these other renderings the king james and when the gentiles heard this they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, they believed. How about the NLT, which is really kind of more of a paraphrase, but it is a translation. When the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for His message, and all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. 
The LEB, that's the Lexham English Bible to good rendering, good translation. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and to glorify the word of the Lord. And all those who were designated for eternal life believed. The NRSV, that's the New Revised Standard Version. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and praised the word of the Lord. And as many had been destined for eternal life, they became believers. The A-N-T or the ant, right? It's literally the ant, the Anderson New Testament. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were determined to obtain eternal life, believed. The WNT, that's the Weymouth New Testament. The Gentiles listened with delight and extolled the Lord's message. And all who were predestined to the life of the ages... That's a really cool way to talk about eternal life. All who were predestined to the life of the ages, what did they do? Believed. Now, this is the same verse rendered in multiple different translations. It says the same thing, but uses interchangeable different words that mean the same truth. Now, I want you to notice the cause and effect, right? We saw it in verse 47. Now, there's cause and effect here in verse 48. The Gentiles were appointed to eternal life by God. That's the cause. And they believed. That is the effect. The Lord was the active outside source. The Gentiles were the passive subjects. The Lord appointed them and they believed. Appointment comes first. It is the cause. What am I telling you? I am telling you that God elected them to eternal life before they believed, not because they believed. You understand? It's clear as day. It's irrefutable. And we know that election took place when? Before the foundation of the world, right? We zip back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Here's the deal. Anyone who reads verse 48 can see the cause and effect. They can see the order. It's plain to the eyes. It's crystal clear, right? Other translations use a variety of words to say the exact same thing. We looked at a ton of them. Appointment and then faith. If God had not elected these Gentiles unto salvation, if He had not appointed them to faith before the foundation of the world, they would not have believed the message of Paul and Barnabas, the very gospel. They wouldn't have. They believed because they were appointed unto that belief. They trusted in Christ. Why? Because they were elect. I'm not removing their activity in this. They came freely to Christ, but only after they had been regenerated. And we see the evidence of regeneration in their rejoicing. What conditions did these Gentiles meet? Do we see them believing and then receiving this divine appointment? Do we see them trusting in Christ and then being elected? No, it's the other way around. They met no conditions. Their appointment to faith was set long before they ever believed. God did this for them because He is merciful, right? Exodus 33, verse 19, Romans chapter 9, verse 15, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. This, my friends, 
is unconditional election, and it is lucidly clear. It's lucidly clear. Now, we see the unconditional aspect of election in Romans chapter 9, obviously. I mean, we see it in a lot of places, and we'll visit a few. Romans chapter 9 is a wonderful place to go to. Uh, God chose Jacob, not Esau, verse 13, before they were born. Okay, He chose Jacob over Esau before they were born and completely independent of anything they would do in life. Verse 11a, He did this in accordance with His electing purposes. Verse 11b, not in accordance with the decision they made for Christ. Why? By His mercy He did this for them, verse 15. Because election is not dependent. This is the exact what the exact Scripture says here. Because election is not dependent on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, verse 16. This is unconditional election. Two twins. There's, we have twins here that are born. One is chosen, the other isn't. And God's choosing of this one twin took place in eternity past before they were born and based entirely upon the mercy of God, not anything that would be foreseen in the lives of these two people who would grow up. It's all done by His mercy in accordance with His electing purposes. It literally says, so the purposes of election will stand in verse 11b. This is unconditional election, friends. This is a verse that we Calvinists go to, but it's so Clear. Again, one is accepted, one is rejected. It talks about when the one was accepted and why, according to God's electing purposes, according to His will and mercy. Not because God looked out over the corridors of time and saw Jacob believe in Jesus. It's ridiculous to even hint at that. We see unconditional election in the next chapter, in chapter 10, verse 20 of Romans, where Paul cites Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. This is God speaking here. Listen to this. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. How can God be found, right, by people who are not seeking Him? How is that even remotely possible? How can He be found by a people group or by people who are not actually looking for Him? It's simple. He goes and finds them first. How can God show Himself to those who are not asking for Him? How can He reveal Himself to people who, who aren't even asking for Him? It's simple. He reveals Himself to them first, right? He takes the initiative and does this. This verse is teaching that God is the true seeker. He seeks out and finds His people. When He finds them, He reveals Himself to them. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. What condition or conditions do the non-seeking, non-asking meet to be found by God? Is it faith? That's what the Arminian says. No, it's not faith. If, if they had faith, they would have been seeking and asking for God. But they're not seeking or asking for God. Why? They don't have faith. God takes the initiative and comes to them. These people that, God, that, that find God, God finds them first. But before He finds them, what are they? They are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. That stands for everyone throughout all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. 
They have no faith. Therefore, they do not seek or ask for God. God seeks and finds them because they belong to Him, not because they believe. He makes Himself known to them because He has chosen them for salvation before the foundation of the world. This is what is clearly taught in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and it stands for Scripture everywhere. It's not just some rogue truth. Whenever something happens in the, in the Old Testament where somebody is saved, that's because God found them. In the New Testament, that's because God found them when they weren't looking for Him. Does it make sense? We see unconditional election in John chapter 10, verse 26, where Jesus tells the religious leaders, listen to this, my goodness, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You have to be among the sheep to be able to believe. The sheep are the chosen ones, the elect. They have been appointed to hear the voice of the good shepherd and follow him. Verse 26 of chapter 10 of John. They were actually given to Christ by the Father. Verse 29, when? Right there in that moment? Well, certainly they were given to him then, but initially they were given to Christ in eternity past at election. There are no conditions we can meet to become sheep. We do not become sheep because we believe. We believe because we are sheep. This is the precise point Jesus is making here. You guys don't believe because you're not my sheep. If you were my sheep, like these guys here, you would believe my testimony, the miracles, you'd believe the gospel. If the religious leaders had been sheep, what would have happened? Cause would be the fact that they were made sheep. Effect would have been that they would have believed. But they were goats, and goats cannot and will not believe. No offense, Brenda, because I know your last name is Goats. We're not talking about you. You're a lovely goat. That was awkward. I'm now digging a deep hole. Goats will never believe because they weren't chosen in eternity past to believe. They were not chosen by God for salvation. They will remain goats. And they love being goats. Believe me. Go ask an unbeliever. Do you hate being an do you Do you hate the fact that you're an unbeliever? I, I love my life. What are you talking about? They're arrogant about it. We see unconditional election or the election component to unle uh, uh, the unconditional component to election in John 15, verse 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. If conditional election were true, the order would be reversed. Jesus would have said, you chose me and I chose you and we're one big happy family. It'd be like Barney, right? The Arminian has it backwards. Well, you guys chose me, so I chose you and now you're going to go bear fruit. No, Jesus chose them. He chose them at a pivotal moment in history, right? He literally picked them to be disciples, but they were also chosen for that task and appointed to it in eternity past. You chose me and I chose you. The Arminian has it that way. It's not the way it's taught. Now, we can go to, to a lot more places in Scripture to find this unconditional component, but we only have so much time, right? So let's do one more. And, and there's more things to talk about here, but let's do one more. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. 
God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Hmm. It says that our salvation and calling results not from our works, but from God's own purpose and grace, which He gave us in eternity past before the ages began. What conditions did we meet here? Zilch, nothing. This was predetermined. This was appointed. Doesn't have anything to do with us believing. No conditions here. The only condition is the condition that God Himself met according to His will, and that was the will to save some. Now, the Arminian attempts to reverse the order in all of the passages that we've looked at, all of them. He puts believing ahead of appointment. He puts faith in front of election. He says that we are chosen for salvation because we believe. He's got it all backwards. But the Scriptures are clear. The Bible teaches unconditional election, period. He says what it says. Now, it's intriguing to me, and this is a thought I had this morning. Why does the Arminian do this? Why does he or she take these things and reverse them and put believing ahead of anything else? Why do they do that? Why do they essentially deny the doctrine of election? Why do they do this? Right? We, we can't just say it's because they're, they're very prideful and humanistic and they really despise Scripture. Most of the Arminians I've ever met, I was one for a long time. We, we loved God. We, we loved God. I loved God before I understood these things. So I don't think it's a deliberate attempt to just change the meaning of Scripture. They're, they're trying to do something here. Why? What? What is going on here? Well, it, it, it's hard to determine, but I think it could be because the Arminian is trying to resolve a mysterious twin truth that we see in Scripture that cannot be reconciled in our minds. And that twin truth is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is absolutely sovereign. Absolutely. There's, there's, no, there's no area that, that He's excluded from. He's not locked out of the decor room like the lead pastor of this church is. He has access to everything. That was a joke, but it's real. He, he, Shannon's going, amen, and you will stay out of that room. I'll start decorating the street. He is not locked out of anything. He, he, he don't stop at man's freedom. That's ridiculous. There's no area where, where, where his sovereignty doesn't have jurisdiction. He is absolutely sovereign. He is the only one who can grant the gifts of faith and repentance. And yet, man is absolutely responsible for his sin and unbelief. Totally. Will be thrown right into hell for all the sin and not believing. Now, if that doesn't stop you in your tracks and you say, I have no idea what's going on now, welcome to the club. The Bible teaches these twin truths, right? Spurgeon said they run parallel God's absolute sovereignty, man's total responsibility. That's a mysterious thing that's happening there. It teaches these truths. And guess what? They make total and absolute sense in the infinite mind of God. They just don't make much sense in our finite minds, do they? But it's true. And guess what? 
we have to accept these twin truths. We have to accept them by faith, right? This is one of those moments where you got to err on the side of faith. Okay, they're there. They're there in Scripture. I see it, but I don't get it, but I'm going to have to accept it by faith, right? And guess what? Because it's in Scripture, not only are you required to accept them by faith, but you have to teach them. We preach at this church the absolute sovereignty of God, and we preach at this church the absolute responsibility of man. You better get your butt in gear and repent and believe the gospel. Sounds like a contradiction. Well, it's a paradox, but that's what we preach. We got to believe it and we got to teach it. And I think what happens is the Arminian seems unwilling to do this. He's just unwilling. She's unwilling to go ahead and accept this as a mystery. And so what they do is they go about rearranging Scripture, right? And they put human freedom and faith ahead of everything in an effort to reconcile the tension. They say to themselves, well, how could God hold people accountable for unbelief when they can't believe unless He does it for them? That's a great question to ask. And guess what the answer is? I have no idea. But the Armenian says, I don't like that uncertainty. I don't, I don't like the fact that I can't reconcile that tension. I don't like paradoxes, so I'll play with Scripture. Dangerous. Deadly. That's a huge mistake. Rearranging the Word of God to ease your mind and or support your soteriological position is equivalent to adding or subtracting from Scripture. Revelation twenty-two eighteen. The Lord says, Those who do this shall receive the plagues of this book and lose their share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Revelation 22, verse 19. There are clear warnings in Scripture not to tamper with it. And if you're upset and can't get your mind around something, don't play with Scripture. Accept it by faith or keep being a dork and not accepting it. But don't mess with Scripture. And it leads me to think, I wonder how the Lord will respond to the 44% of American evangelicals who reject the doctrine of election and or tamper with it. That's a terrifying thought if you think about it. There's just some things in Scripture that are lucidly clear to God but not absolutely clear to us, and we've got to be willing to accept them by faith. May we never, ever preach a gospel that is just pure election without any human responsibility. We've got to repent and believe. And guess what? If we've done that, that's God's work in our hearts. But we don't want to leave one for the other, right? That's what happens. You can become an extreme Calvinist and never even preach the gospel because God's just going to do everything. Well, He's also ordained everything in between, so get to work. Got to accept these truths. And it's a scary thought to think of what God will, how He will deal with those who won't accept them and mess with them. Now, I think this is a good question to ask at this juncture as we begin to wrap up because this is a question that comes up among people when you're talking about election and unconditional election. One thing that'll start going through their minds, and maybe it's gone through your mind, is this, how do I know I'm elect? Right? Did anyone in here start to think like that? Man, if this is all God, how the heck do I know where I stand? How do I know that I was appointed? How do I know that, that I was predestined to salvation? How do I know that I'm among the elect? I think that's a legitimate question to ask. A lot of people ask that question when they start teasing out these doctrines. Well, the Scripture's clear. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This is how you can know. I mean, there's a lot of Scripture that talks about testing yourself, working out your election or salvation and fear and trembling. There's a ton, but 
This is, this is a really good one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This is kind of a litmus test. Listen to what he says. This is Paul writing. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Mm. Paul tells the brothers and sisters at, at this church in Thessalonica that he has basically zero doubts about their election. He's not doubting that. He's not even questioning that. What had convinced him of this? Well, when the gospel came to these folks, it literally transformed their lives because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. When they heard the word, they became deeply convicted. Convicted of what? Of sin and of their need of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When Paul looked at this little church, he could see the effects of the Holy Spirit's power in the lives of the people. He could see conviction and, and transformation, and this convinced him of their election. Why is that? Because when God appoints or elects to salvation, He appoints everything else. The, the work of the Spirit in them, the possession of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the conviction, the faith, the repentance, it's all packed into this God package of salvation. Paul looked and saw a church that, that was doing all the things that the Holy Spirit would reveal, and he just said, I have no doubt. Now, when the gospel came to us, did it come with Holy Spirit power? Hmm? Did the Spirit bring deep conviction? And it's not just an initial conviction. It's a conviction that grows and grows and grows. When the gospel came to us, did it come with Holy Spirit power? Did it come with conviction? Did we, at least at some point, and maybe we still do, but did we initially recognize that we are sinners in need of salvation in Christ alone? Did we repent and, and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have our lives been transformed? Are we being sanctified? Are we growing in grace? Are we becoming like Jesus? Here's a question. If Paul were to visit us, what would he see and hear? Mm. I'm not talking about right now in this context because he would think that he's seeing a bunch of Christians, but what's he seeing on a Friday night with those beers in your hand? Hmm? What's he seeing with that girlfriend that you've got? Hmm? What's he seeing when you're not here? What would Paul see if he were given a... If, if you had a camera on you 24-7, boy, that is terrifying, especially when I'm driving. Oh, Lord. What would Paul see if he visited you? And maybe you didn't know he was there. Would, would he do this? Would he become convinced of your election? Hmm? Would he? I hope so. If there is no transformation in our lives, we should question whether or not we are chosen. If we're not different, there's no reason for us just to assume we're elected. The evidence of election is missing. The Holy Spirit and the power and transformation that He brings, the, the deep conviction that starts initially and I think just continues to grow as you grow in grace. If those things aren't there, you got no reason to sit here and go, I'm elect. You could be, and maybe you're just not converted yet. 
Now here's the deal. The evidence, if the evidence is missing, and yet if we desire to be among the elect and to have a different life, because that's what this is, if, if that's your desire, you don't see the evidence of it, but it's your desire to be among the elect and, and your desire to have a different kind of life, right? Because you don't like the life that you have. If, if that is there, this could be a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. And what should you do? You should ask God for mercy because it's only by His mercy that He does anything. And if you did this, that would be a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart because no spiritually dead sinner is interested in any of what I'm saying. No interest. If the power of the Holy Spirit and transformation, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, if these things are present in our lives, we have no reason to doubt our election. Instead, we should rejoice and exalt God because we are among the elect. Not because of anything we did, but because God showed us mercy by choosing us for salvation before the foundation of the world. And I say to that, hallelujah. Why would we get upset about election when it is the most glorious of all truths? If there's no election, there's no salvation. If it's conditioned, there's no salvation. Rejoice in what God has accomplished for you. Rejoice in the fact that He thought about you and loved you before you ever existed and that He chose you for salvation. He elected you to that, and then He brought it about in time and space through the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice. How can you have assurance of your election or salvation if the Arminian argument is true? How can we have any assurance of anything if it's us that brings ourselves into it? If I can bring myself into something, I can certainly bring myself out of it. How am I ever going to have assurance of salvation or of election if it's, a, if it's my work? For crying out loud, I'm probably one of the most unstable human beings in the world. I'm all over the place. I had somebody tell me yesterday, dude, you're like the Katy Perry song. You're hot and you're cold and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's my predicament. I am. Man, if it's left to me, I'm doomed. I am doomed. If it were left to you, you'd be doomed. But it's in the hands of God who is almighty and all-powerful and absolutely sovereign. Rejoice in what He's done for you. Don't question it. Don't doubt it. Don't, don't try to teach against it. Accept it by faith. Accept it by faith.